You may be seated. Would you all pray with me? Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you. Oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This is a lacrimatory. I bought it in Bethlehem in the West Bank in 2013. Throughout the Roman Empire, these were thought to have been used to catch the tears of the grieving. The Palestinian artisan whom I bought it from explained to me that now, for him and for many, they are a cultural symbol of the deep grief of generations. Today, surely a million of these vases could not hold the tears wept in Israel and Palestine this month, or the tears wept here in Boston. They would overflow, crashing wave after crashing wave, a torrent of tears. The Bible itself begins with a story of unruly waters. One translation reads, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was waste and wild and darkness covered the face of the deep. Waste and wild. In Hebrew, it's tohu vabohu. The word play that you can only really hear in the Hebrew seeks to impart upon the hearer just how chaotic the whole scene was. A wild and wet wasteland full of confusion. And darkness covered the face of the deep. The deep is tehom in Hebrew. It's a word with a grim connotation, meaning something between the sea and the abyss and the grave. And it was out of this wet and wild wasteland that God carved the world into being. The very stuff that we're made of is chaos. But what? What of this watery chaos from which all things came? It's not evil. It's just raw energy to be molded and sculpted. And yet so often we humans, we have chosen to turn that energy into violence. I saw a video this week that I cannot get out of my head. It was of a young Palestinian toddler who looked an awful lot like a toddler I care for. He was maybe three years old. He was shaking and he could not stop. He was covered in dust and there was a gash on his arm. And an older boy, but still a child, maybe eight years old, was with him patting him gently. 
That nine-year-old had a head wound and it was wrapped in gauze, dried blood down his whole body. And the little one could not stop shaking. His tiny body holding the energy of a violence so much bigger than his tiny three-year-old frame could bear. It's bigger than any of us can bear. Maybe you too have seen things like this on your phone or in the news. The shadowy chaos reaching thousands of miles across the sea to your very heart, bringing with it an unruliness that is more than you can hold. In this world, the one that we live in, shaped by cosmic disorder and millennia of cyclical human violence, chaos is always beckoning. Even we who try to live lives of control, our neatly folded towels and well-cleaned stoves, maybe that's you, it's not me, chaos, chaos is never very far. One sequence of tragic events could undo each of us. And perhaps you've had these moments, I hope not, but I'm guessing you have, where the chaos enters in. A phone call from a doctor or a friend, a headline that stops your heart. The first time your kid's school does an active shooter drill, and in an instant, you go from feeling in control to the overwhelming realization that you are utterly vulnerable. And not only you, but everyone you love. Privileged by some of us, a little bit of protection, but in the end, very little protects us from chaos. Not living righteously or being right, not zip code or culture or way of life. So wild a web we humans have woven for so long that not even children are protected from the capriciousness of the violence of this world that they have just begun living in. In the beginning, the earth was all chaos and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from the Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. Over the abyss, the Spirit broods. The verb used there, sometimes translated as the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters or blew, it's used elsewhere in the Bible only for birds above their nests. Like a mother hen, she moves gently, nurturing life over the swirling deep. She is not consumed by the waves, nor does she avoid them, but floats upon them, calling forth life. But we, we are not God. We cannot always hover gently over chaos without being pulled into the undertow. 
And we find ourselves right now in the middle of chaos. And so what do we do when we're faced with chaos that is greater than we can hold? Fight, flight, freeze, flee. We respond to trauma by protecting ourselves, by protecting our minds and our hearts from the unbearable weight of sorrow. The terror that is crashing upon the earth right now in Gaza, the fear that abides in the homes of all who await loved ones held hostage by terrorists. We freeze. We say it's complicated, as if that might absolve us from wading into the chaos ourselves. My friend Cody Sanders, a Baptist pastor, wrote an article about Gaza and grief. He names how we must hold complexity without being immobilized by it. And he reminded us, he reminded me, that if we don't know where to start, start with grief. He writes, we are convicted as Christians and condemned as humans by those whose lives we are unwilling to grieve. The complexity of the geopolitics does not mean that we cannot mourn the actual human lives lost. We cannot allow the deep complexity and the history and trauma of a land and of many peoples to negate the trauma of thousands of child-sized body bags piling up. We cannot allow ourselves to be so dehumanized. In the face of dehumanization, we must remember every death is grievable, every single one. Reverend Dr. Sanders writes, this is not to say something banal, like there are many good people dying on both sides. It is to say there are many people dying. And so we grieve. And grief maintains or maybe reclaims our humanity and theirs. And so we must we must lament a world where generational trauma plays out on the guilty and the innocent alike. Across the ocean, a world is coming undone. Inside many of our friends' lives, a world is coming undone. Inside some of our lives, a world is coming undone, and we cannot pretend like we live in a different world. Any possible future worth living in depends on our ability to cling to our humanity and to theirs, to grieve, to hear the wails of mothers and orphans, to witness the cries of young people who thought they were just going to a music festival, to see the deadened eyes of the men in flip-flops digging through the rubble to find their families or not. We must grieve. Grief might give way to outrage, might pursue peace and justice, whatever else it does, our grief will make us more human and lead us to compassion.
Theologian Jürgen Moltmann writes that today, living hope means a passion for life and a lived protest against death. Grief can lead us into action. And I cannot say for you what that action might be. One thing that we Christians must do is counter the rise of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. We must begin to take responsibility for the role that Christian Zionism has played in this conflict and work to undo the damage. It's a fundamentalist Christian belief in the necessity of the Jewish people to return to the Holy Land, not for their good, but to make way for a coming Christ. And that belief of our own siblings has fueled and financed extraordinary violence. And so we push back. We tell a better story of Christianity. And we grieve. And our grief will ask us to wade into the chaos. Not to be consumed by it, but to embody God's love amidst an untenable grief. There are not easy answers, but we don't need to offer answers in order to grieve, in order to work for or beg for a world that honors the promise of all of our children. The world seems to be coming undone, chaos reigns, and at the very best, our humanity is frayed at the edges, and so what to do? Keep, our, keep your heart tender, though it will cost you some cheap happiness. See the beauty of life, all of it, and then work to protect it. We cannot control the chaos, but we do have some power. And we must discern what that is, lest our souls endure the irreparable damage of doing nothing. We can embody God's love in all the ways we know how. We can offer up our resources, what we think we can afford to give, and then a little more. We can lend our voice, though doing so, we'll have to risk wading into the murky waters. And we can grieve. We can insist on our own humanity and everyone else's. These little vases are buried in tombs, ancient and modern. Imagine how many of these are scattered over the Holy Land. Imagine how much must be beneath the ground. Thousands of years of grief. Wave upon wave of cries, an unrelenting torrent of tears. In the beginning. In the beginning, when all was waste and wild, and a wind from the Spirit of God swept over the waters, bringing her compassion to chaos, calling forth life. One way to translate the very beginning of that is 
when God began to create the heavens and the earth. Began to create. Not set in motion and walked away. Not made every gecko and ginkgo leaf and completed the task. But began. Began to create. And so today, I believe though I do not always see how that God is still moving over our chaos, brooding as a mother bird over her children, moving tenderly amongst the wasteland of our violence. One day, one day God will wipe every tear from every eye. One day God will swallow up death whole. One day, mourning and crying and pain will be no more. We are not there yet. And so, into this world of chaos where all seems waste and wild, the spirit still moves gently upon the waters, calling forth life. We are all held under the wings of that same loving God, the same one who broods over the families of infants held hostage, who broods over the child who cannot stop shaking for the bombs, who broods over the peace workers and the doctors, the legislatures and the weapon makers, who broods over each and every one of our tender and broken hearts. And that God who holds us calls us into the chaos, not so that we might drown, but so that we might learn from her the way of life and not death, so that we might grieve with her, so that we might be her love in the midst of chaos. God help us. Amen.